Thank you, choir. I thought Mr. Phillips was going to have a fit up here. (laughs) Well, one's last words are always interesting because they tend to reveal what that person thought was important. And today we come to conclude our study in 2 Peter. And as he concludes his letter, he does so with the second coming of Christ. There has always been speculation about when Jesus is going to return. William Miller, a Baptist preacher who founded the Adventist movement in the 1830s, said that Jesus was going to return in 1843. Joseph Smith, the founder and first prophet of the Latter-day Saints, said that Jesus would return no later than 1891. C.T. Russell, the founder of Watchtower, set the date of Jesus' return at 1914. He changed it to 1918. He changed it to 1925. He changed it to 1943. He changed it to 1975. And then finally, he stopped making predictions. Hal Lindsey, the author of The Late Great Planet Earth, said he believed that Jesus would return in 1988. Well, Jesus has told us very plainly that no one knows the day nor the hour when he is going to return. There is no one who knows. And yet the Bible tells us that he is going to return. In fact, in the New Testament, one out of every 30 verses in the New Testament speaks of his return. And the Bible says that when he comes, it is going to be glorious. You and I cannot imagine what is going to take place when he returns. Jesus said in Luke 21, 27, And when they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So when he comes, it is going to be glorious. We are to be prepared. How? Let me give you three words. The first is decision. That we make a decision that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Secondly, is preparation. You see, our question is not nearly so much, when is he going to come, but how am I to live until he does come? And the third word is anticipation. Then we live in anticipation of the return of Christ. So take your Bibles, turn with me to Second Peter chapter 3 as we conclude this letter. Verse number 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord to be salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, 
Be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Now, concerning the second coming, Peter reminds us of the promise of his return. If you look back up in verse number 3, he says, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? Now, Peter's audience was familiar with the promise. Because it was found oftentimes in Scripture that Jesus was coming again. So they were familiar with the promise. Peter also acknowledges that in the last days that there would be mockers. Those who deny that Jesus is going to come back. And he says this is the way they reach their conclusion. They say, well, he hasn't come back. The world continues as it has always continued. Therefore, he is not going to come back. And yet, again and again in Scripture, we are promised that Christ is going to return. And the Bible says that that is our blessed hope. The Apostle Paul wrote in Titus 2.13, Looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Well, how does he come? What happens when he returns? Now, let me say to you, so you will understand, that I am a premillennialist in my interpretation of eschatology or last things. So you need to understand that's the way that I come. Premillennial simply means before the millennial. So I believe that Jesus is going to come before the millennial reign. Now, having said that, let me tell you the events as I believe they are going to occur when Christ comes. First of all, there is the rapture. Now, the word rapture means catching away. The word itself is not used in Scripture, but there are verses that describe the event. In Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse number 1, Paul wrote, Now, we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him. That would be the rapture. So that is the catching away. So what the Bible says, and I believe, is that at any moment, the saved could be caught out of this world. That the Lord could rapture us to be with Him. And according to the Scriptures, I understand it, for seven years, the believer then is going to be with Him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But what about those who are not believers? What about those who are left behind? Well, the Bible says that they will go through the Great Tribulation, which is a period of intense suffering. So, when we're talking about the events of His return, it begins with the rapture, the catching away of the people of God. Those who are not believers are left behind. They are left on earth to go through a seven-year period of the Great Tribulation. Jesus said in Matthew 24:21, For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. So what is going to happen? Well, the believer is going to be caught up to be with the Lord for seven years. We are at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Those who are not saved are left behind. They go through a seven-year period of tribulation, a time of suffering. At the end of that seven years, 
Then the Lord and his saints will return to the battle of Armageddon. The Bible says in Revelation 19:19, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat upon the horse and against his army. So there's going to be the battle of Armageddon, this great battle that we have heard about all our lives, that's going to take place in the valley of Megiddo. So that was an ancient battlefield. I've been there many times. And that is where the battle of Armageddon is going to be. And the Bible says that Jesus is going to win that battle. Now, after the battle of Armageddon, then the Lord is going to establish his kingdom, his millennial reign, his thousand-year reign. The Bible says in Revelation 20, verse 2, And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. The millennial reign of Christ is when many of the prophecies of the Old Testament are going to be fulfilled. That is going to be the time when Jesus reigns from the throne of David. That is going to be a time when there is peace, there is joy. That is going to be a wonderful, wonderful time. For those who know the Lord, it is the millennial reign of Christ. Jesus, I believe, will reign on this earth for a period of a thousand years. He will establish a new heaven, it says in verse 13, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Well, that's the way that I see the second coming of Christ taking place. There is the rapture, the tribulation here on earth, and so forth. And that's the way I understand it. The question still remains in our minds is, but why the delay? Why has Christ not returned? A couple of answers to that. One is that God is eternal. He does not see time as you and I see time. There is not a lot of time and a little time. He's eternal. And so the Bible tells us in Proverbs 94, For a thousand years in thy sight are like yesterday when it passes by, or as a watch in the night. So because God is eternal, then he doesn't see time as you and I do. The second reason Peter suggests is that because of his patience, that the Lord is patiently waiting on people to trust him, that they might be saved, that they might go to heaven. The scripture says in Ezekiel 33:11, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. So, according to Peter here, as he speaks about the second coming, we are to be ready for his come. Now, the Bible tells us that it is denied by mockers, and I believe delayed by grace, but he is nevertheless coming. Now then, he talks about the people of his coming. What kind of people are we to be? Well, he says that we are to be different. Now, folks, if you're a Christian, listen to me, because this is something, obviously, we are missing. The Bible says if we are Christians, if we are followers of Christ, that our lives are to be different from those who do not follow Christ. He says we are to be different in our conduct. Look at verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Barclay wrote, the one thing in which Peter is supremely interested is the moral dynamic of the second coming. If these things are going to happen and the world is hastening to judgment, obviously a man must live a life of piety and of holiness. Holy conduct. 
We are to be holy, and the word holy means set apart. As believers, as followers of Christ, we are to be set apart from the world and set apart to God. That means a a life of holiness. Now, it's my belief as I thought about this and prayed about this. I don't know that there's ever been a time when it is more important for the people of God to live holy lives than today. It seems to me that the official policy of our government oftentimes is godlessness. And the Bible says that we are to live holy lives. That we are to have an attitude of godliness. We are different from the world. The world lives for pleasure. You and I, if we are saved, are to live for God. We we don't live for pleasure. We live for Him. The, The world becomes indifferent about life because there is no purpose to it. They don't have a sense of purpose. It is all accidental. I'm just here. I've evolved, and here we are. But I came from nowhere. I'm doing nothing, and I'm going nowhere. There is a sense of purposelessness. And so they wander around as if they are lost. But the Bible says that we are to live lives with an attitude of godliness because of the return of Jesus Christ. It is His return that causes us to have purpose in life, that we are going somewhere. That we're here for purpose. Barclay wrote, when we have stripped the doctrine of the second coming, of all its temporary and local imagery, the tremendous truth it conserves is that life is going somewhere, and without that conviction, there's nothing to live for. Peter says we're to be different in conduct. He said that we are to be different in our witness because we give witness to the return of Christ. Look at verse number 12. Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, and the elements will melt with intense heat. We are to be witnesses of the return of Christ. Now, there are two extremes we have to avoid. One is that there are those who so stress the sovereignty of God that they say, we don't need to worry about it, that whoever's going to be saved is going to be saved. I remember going to a revival meeting some years ago, and the evangelist saying to us at the end of the service, Now, don't worry about going out and getting lost people to come to the revival for them to get saved. God's going to save whomever He's going to save. And there are those who see, uh, they stress so much, and I believe it to be an extreme, they stress so much the sovereignty of God that we have no responsibility in it. Now, then, to the other extreme, there are those who say that, that it is all up to me, that, that it is the salvation of man is all up to me, and they totally ignore the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me give you two illustrations, because I believe that, uh, that the work is a partnership with God, that God intends for us to partner with Him. And I can give you two illustrations that might help concerning that. The first is concerning Israel. The Lord was sending Israel to the promised land. And you recall the story. He had freed them from Egypt. They were on the way to the promised land. They sent spies in to spy out the land and to come back and give a report. The spies, the twelve spies, came back to give the report as to what they had seen. And they said, we can't go into the land. There are giants over there. We look like grasshoppers. There's no way that we can go into the land. So at Kadesh Barnea... The people of Israel rebelled against the Lord. And the Lord said then, all right, here's what we're going to do. 
The adults are not going in. Instead, when the adults die off and the next generation comes, then you can go in. And those adults did not go in except for Joshua and Caleb. So what happened then is that the Lord had his plan, but when the people rebelled against his plan, then the Lord adjusted his plan to them. He wanted them to go into the promised land. They rebelled, and the Lord said, the adults then are not going to go in, and they did not. Another example. When the Lord sent Jonah to Nineveh to preach a message there, his message basically was this, in 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. And that's what he did. He went into Nineveh. Preaching that message, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. But the people repented. They repented of their sin. They turned to God. And God spared the people once again. God was responding to those people and the way they responded to him. So I believe what we do in our partnership is that we pray and we trust God and we witness, but we trust him to save souls because only he can save. So our part then is to give a witness. We are to tell people about Jesus, how they can be saved. That's your responsibility. Now, the Lord did not give that to the United Way. He gave that to us. We who are his children, we have the responsibility of being witnesses of Christ, and then God will save those who turn to him. So he said, we are to be different in witness. He said, we are to be different at his coming, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. In peace. You see, if we know the Lord, then we are at peace with God. The Bible says in Romans 5, 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, you need not fear His coming if you're saved. I had someone to tell me today that they, 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 were, they were nervous about His coming because they knew that I was going to be preaching on the second coming. I'm, I'm fearful of His coming, nervous about His coming. You, you need not be. If you know the Lord, you don't have to fear it because the Bible says He's coming in peace. You and I are at peace with God. If we know the Lord, we are at peace. So the Bible says when he comes, it's, 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 it's peace. He's the Prince of Peace bringing peace. And then he says spotless. We have not been spotted by the false teachers that Peter has been talking about in this letter. He says that we are blameless, which means that we will stand guiltless before him. So we're different at his coming. He says we're different in character. A saved person is not like an unsaved person. The Bible says that if we are in Christ, we are a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things become new. My friend, let me tell you, if you know Jesus Christ, you are different from those who do not know Jesus Christ. Now, you can be a Baptist and not be any different, or Methodist or something else, but you cannot know Jesus and not be different because Christ changes our life. Now, then he tells us about those who are unsaved in verse number 15b. Just as also our, brother, our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in his letter, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures, to their own destruction. He says, now there are people out there who are untaught. In other words, they do not understand the things of God because they are not spiritually discerned. I don't know how it affects you. I, I would imagine pretty much as it does me. But sometimes I get so frustrated. I get so frustrated that it seems like our society does not understand the truths of God's Word. 
the truths of life. I hear people talk sometimes and, well, are you pro-life? Well, what would I be, pro-death? I'm, no, I'm, I'm not pro-death. Yes, I'm for life. I'm for babies being born. And I don't understand that sometimes, the way... But the Bible says that they're not spiritually discerned. And so I really ought not expect someone who does not know Jesus to have an appreciation or understanding for the things of God. I really ought not. Because the Bible tells us that unstable. They're never settled in what they believe. Have you noticed that those who are not anchored in the Word of God are constantly going from one new thing to another? I mean, they can just never settle down. They can never get settled. There's always something new. There's always some other idea. There's always something else to go to. Trying to please someone else. Going along with someone else. So he says that they are untaught, they're unstable, and because they don't understand the, the things of God, they, they distort the Word of God. Isaiah talks about a time when people see right as wrong and wrong as right. Light is dark and dark is light. Bitter is sweet and sweet is bitter. I think we live in that time. It seems to me like the world is turned upside down. And so we choose death over life and homosexuality over heterosexuality. Ungodliness over godliness. It doesn't make sense to me other than that's what the Scripture says. Those who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior are untaught, unstable, and therefore they distort the Word of God to make it say things that it does not say. And in Peter's day, the thing they were concerned about as far as the distortion of God's Word is that there were those who said, because you're saved by grace, you don't have to worry about law. In other words, live like you want to live. They distorted law and works, or uh, the, the grace and works. That I'm saved by grace, I don't have to do the works. Now, apparently that has crept into the church because there are a lot of people who, boy, I mean, they'll tell you about their faith, but they don't do any works. Folks, let me tell you, if you know Jesus Christ, there's a difference in your life. You see, the Bible says that we are saved by grace, but it says that we have been saved. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So we are not saved by works, but works validate our salvation. If I am a believer, it means then that my life confirms my belief. Now, I'm married to Linda. You know, where I spend a night is, says something about that relationship. The way I spend my money says something about that relationship. It affects things. A relationship to Jesus Christ affects things. So, people of His coming are, are different, and then the passion of His coming. Look what He says in verse number 17. You therefore, beloved... Knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, you fall from your own steadfastness. He said, be on your guard. Be on your guard against the heresies of false teachers. Now, ladies and gentlemen, we cannot compromise with error. We cannot. And the government might tell us something is legal that God forbids. It doesn't make any difference. We cannot compromise with error. And if God's Word says something, then we stand on His Word. 
He says, we do not compromise with error. Now look again at verse number 17. He says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on guard, lest being carried away by the error of unprincipled men. You fall from your own steadfastness. Now there are some who have understood that verse to mean that we fall from grace, that we lose our salvation. That doesn't say that. It says that we fall from steadfastness. In other words, if we do not stand in the truth of God's word, then we're unstable in our lives. Now, if you do not build your... Listen, if you do not build your life on the Word of God as a believer, you're going to go through life unstable. There's no stability in your life. You fall from your steadfastness. And then he says in verse number 18, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, to Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. He said, So we are to be on guard against error and grow in grace. There are four stages in the Christian life, as I understand it. There is the baby stage that is referred to in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. This is people who are still on the milk. They are babies. They are new converts. And uh, they have simply not grown up their own milk, not meat. And they are characterized by jealousy and strife. Now, these are the, these are the babies in the faith. They have a tendency to be argumentative and so forth. Babies do that. You know, babies are a mess. And Christian babies are no different. They are a mess. And somebody's always having to go around cleaning up after them. So there's the baby stage. Then there is the child stage. In 1 John 2.12, John wrote, I am writing to you little children. Now, at this stage, they are no longer babies. They are children. They have a tendency to be takers, not givers. They are focused on themselves and what they want, but they are dependent on others. And so we have a lot of those people, people who are children. They are dependent on someone else to meet all of their needs. Somebody else has to do the study for them. Somebody else has to feed them. Somebody else has to chew for them. they They are children, not grown up. Third stage is the young man stage. First John 2.13, I am writing to you, young men. Now, these are those who are young men in the faith. They are strong. They are visionary. They are moving forward. I mean, they're the ones who will go out and, and uh, attack hell with a water pistol. And they're they, they, they just visionary and, and strong. And then there's the father stage. In First John 2.12, I am writing to you, fathers. Now, these are the ones who are mature. They are unselfish. They are productive. But they are mature in the faith. So there are those four stages of Christianity. There's the baby, there's the child, there's the young man, and then there's the father. So he says that we are to be on guard against error and grow in grace. Don't stop down here at the baby stage. Don't stop down here at the child stage. But be moving towards the young man and the father stage. Grow up. So as we come to the second coming of Christ, he says to us that Jesus is coming again. Now, my friend, if you know anything about the Bible and you know anything about prophecy and you see what is going on in the Middle East, you have to conclude that we are getting real close to the return of Jesus. Now, I really believe that. When I see what is happening that has not happened in history, that is the fulfillment of prophecies in the Old Testament concerning the Middle East, it says to me that we are coming to the time of the return of Jesus. Therefore, the saved should grow up. We who know Jesus, we need to grow up. And those who have never come to Christ need to get saved. The Lord is patient and gives us an opportunity to respond to him. But he is coming again. And when he comes, there is going to be a division. Those who are saved are going to be with him. 
and those who are not are going to be separated from him. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessed hope that is ours, that Jesus Christ is coming again. And I pray, Father, that there will not be one person leaving here today who is not prepared if you were to come today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to stand. The choir is going to sing a hymn of invitation. And it will be an opportunity for you. If you're without Christ, today is the day you ought to give your heart to Christ. Maybe the Lord has spoken to you about being a member of our church. Our doors are open to you. We'd love to have you. You come. Stand with me, please, as they sing, You Come, I'll greet you as you do.